turn to the book of James. If not, look on the screen. (laughs) James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And it reads as thus. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the doer of his word. Amen. Well, Toy, I got to say something about your arms. Look at those muscles. She's been working out. She's been getting her fitness in. What's going on, everybody? My name's Nick. Good to be with you. I'm the pastor here at Emmaus Church. Um, before I get into it, I just want to remind you, we have a baptism coming up on was August 13th. 13th? Yeah. 13th. Thank you. I need lots of people in my life. Um, baptism, I'm telling you what, is as good as it gets. Sometimes there's these decisions that we make that are so big, that are so important. We have to actually do something with our body. That sort of is a picture of what we want to see happening on the inside. And among other things, baptism is one of those. And it's a way for us to really say yes to the forgiveness offered to us in God that's ours, the fresh start that's available to us because of God's grace. How many of us could use a fresh start? How many of us could really, you know, stand to have God's forgiveness feel even more real to us than it does right now, right? And baptism is also a real public way for us to say, you know what, we're in. We're in. We are in to the Jesus way of life. And we like to make it a big party. And so if you've never been baptized, man, I would love the chance to dunk you. Might even hold you underwater a little bit longer than I should, you know? Just make sure that we get in there, we clean all that stuff out. But it is such an incredible experience, y'all. Not only for us personally, but man, for all of us to witness together as proof, right? That man, fresh starts, new beginnings, better ways of life are possible because of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that? All right, so baptism is August 13th. If you are interested or you have questions about that, we've got a couple informational meetings happening right after service. On We're going to start July 30th, I think is the first one. Is that date right? You want to look for me? I'm really bad with numbers. I'm just like. All right, cool. That's a Sunday. Awesome. So that'd be the first one. And then August 6th, we'll have another one be right after service. Super quick. I can even do some Zoom meetings during the week if uh, either of those Sundays just don't work for you. All right. But let's baptize some people. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Teach me to know my number of days. Wasn't that a good song? I like that song. As a pastor, I try to keep my requests to a minimum, you know, for Thomas and the band. I don't usually, you know, request. I requested that song, though. I love that song. Teach me to know my number of days. Phrase comes from a prayer in Psalm 90, which we just read a little bit ago. Verse 12. Yeah, Thomas made that really awkward. (laughs) Bro, there's just some weird stuff in the Bible. You just got to go with it. But Psalm 90, verse 12, that prayer is beautiful. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Can we say that together? Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's what I want to talk about today. 
I want to talk about time. I want to talk about how we're spending our time, our days, our weeks, our months, our years. Time is a fascinating thing. I just turned 40. Yeah, that's not old. It's not old. It's not young anymore, though, either, right? But it's that birthday that kind of messes with your head a little bit. It does. You start thinking a lot about time, how fast it goes. Time's weird. Here's some stuff I learned about time this week. I love my job. I love I get to kind of, you know, nerd out on this stuff. But in a way, every human on planet Earth is actually living in the past. Stay with me here. Our brains don't perceive events until about 80 milliseconds after they happen. So in a way, our now is always more of a then. Back then, we're always a little bit behind. Some of you are like, amen, right? Gravity has a fascinating impact on time. You know, the closer you are to a massive body, the slower time passes. Like if you were to put a bunch of synchronized atomic clocks at different altitudes all over the earth, eventually they would actually fall out of sync with each other. Like, so let's just say, you know, you're able to go back in time, right? Right? when everything first started, and and you put a a synchronized atomic clock on, like, the top of Mount Mount Everest, the highest point on the earth, right, and you put another one down on sea level, right, over the course of the estimated 4.5 billion year history of our planet, those clocks would be off by about a day and a half, because gravity impacts time in some really weird ways. Age also seems to have an impact on how fast time moves, or at least our perception of how fast it moves. Y'all agree with that? Right? Like the older you get, the faster it, you know, some of you young people are rolling your eyes because you hear people. But it's true. I mean, the older you get, the faster it seems to go. I remember like when I was little, whether it was, you know, the time before Christmas, how long that would take. Remember like the paper chains, those little red and green chains people would get and you tear one off. It seemed like it'd take forever. Like I remember how long summer used to feel when you were a kid. Like it just felt like it was, you know, a whole year now, I'm, I can't believe that we're halfway through it. I feel like we just were there, you know, at the, at the end of the year. Some of you are like, I work from home. It's not moving fast enough. I feel that. Uh, but the best explanation I've heard for this, why it's like this, is a theory uh, called the exponential theory. Basically, our experience of time is proportional to the amount of time we have been alive. So you take, like, my youngest, Selma. She's seven. One year is a seventh of her entire experience, right? Her life experience up to this point. I'm 40. I've had 40 of those, right? So one year is only one fortieth of my entire experience. That's why it makes it seem like it's going faster. And in fact, it does feel like it gets faster and faster the older you get because it becomes a smaller and smaller part of your total life experience. Fascinating, right? Time is interesting. And humans have been time conscious for a while now. The earliest time-telling devices, like a sundial or a water clock, date back to 1500 BCE. 3,500 years. We've been keeping track of time. Back then, they would, you know, base it on what they were noticing in the sky. But we are a very time-conscious species. (laughs) And now that we all have a clock in our pocket, it's not that hard to figure out what time it is. Am I right? Read a study this past week that might be, you know, info for a sermon on an, another topic. But the average American checks their phone, oh, this is gross, 352 times a day. That's like once every three minutes. 
But most of the time, a lot of those, what are we doing? We're checking the time, right? What time is it? What time is it? It's a question that we really like to ask, but I don't think that's really the most important question we ought to ask in regards to time. I think a better question I want us to wrestle with today is what am I doing with my time? What am I doing with my time? I think that's the question this passage in the book of James wants us to ask. At least that's the question that led me to start asking. And now I'm going to try to get you to start asking it because that's how this works, right? If you're just now joining us, we are in a series on the New Testament book of James, which is probably the earliest writing in the New Testament. It began circulating not long after the church got started. And it was written by James, who was the brother of Jesus. And he didn't come to faith right away. I mean, we've talked about this. You can recognize how hard that would be, right? You're growing up with this guy. and People are saying all these things about him. He really wasn't on board with all of that until after the events of that first Easter. I mean, Paul tells us in one of his letters that James was one of the last people that the resurrected Jesus actually appeared to. And it moved James to faith, and he actually became the lead pastor at the church in Jerusalem, which was like the mothership of the Jesus movement. But he's writing to the church right after it experienced its first really serious persecution. Like things, man, things got bad for the Christians in Jerusalem. I mean, the first Christians were seen as, as dangerous heretics to their Jewish tradition. And they were actually seen as really suspicious to their Roman occupiers because they, would not, they, they wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as Lord. In fact, they, they kept claiming that their, their leader, Jesus, who'd been crucified by the Romans, had been resurrected and God had made him actually the true Lord of the world. That's some dangerous stuff to say in the middle of an empire that insists that Caesar is the true Lord of the world. And so it got them into some trouble. Things got hard for them. And many of them had to scatter. And so he's writing to offer them wisdom in the face of these trials that they were experiencing together, even if they had to be separate for a while. And we aren't doing a line-by-line study of the book of James, because I don't think it was written that way. You know, the chapters and verses weren't in the original copies. They got added a lot later. And if you read through this letter on your own, which I hope you will, you'll notice how repetitive it is. It's like there are these big ideas that get repeated over and over and over again. So we've been kind of taking some of the big themes and, and, and looking at them. And when we first started, I first started studying this letter, kind of reading through it, I didn't think I was going to get a chance to talk about this passage. I was going to have to skip it, right? But the cool thing about being the lead pastor (laughs) is you can just add a week to the series. So that's what I did, right? We're going to finish it up next week, right? But this week, I wanted to take a chance to take take some time to just talk about this passage. Because, man, when I read through the letter, this is the one that got me. This is the one that stayed with me. And hopefully I can get it to mess you up too. How's that sound? Yeah? Let's pray one more time. And then we'll get into it. God, speak to us. Speak to us this morning. We need to hear from you. Even if we think we got this figured out. Speak to us. Maybe to encourage us. About the fact that we do have this figured out. We're doing pretty good. Speak to us, Lord, and help us not to just, to just settle. Lord, wake us up to the gift of your time, which I know most of us in this room don't need to be encouraged about how we're spending our time. We need to be challenged. 
we need a bit of a wake-up call. So that's what I pray for this morning. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So James starts this passage with one of his favorite phrases. He uses this several times throughout the letter. It gets translated as, now listen, or some versions say, come now. I mean, he uses it several times, which tells me it's probably a sort of slang. Right? I'm thinking like, come on, man. Like ESPN, remember that bit on ESPN? Was that Keyshawn or Chris Carter, one of them? Like they'd show little bloopers right on ESPN and somebody would do something dumb. But like, come on, man, right? That's what I think James is like, come on, man. None of y'all thought that was funny. <laughs> Tough crowd. We're not totally sure who he's talking to. We're a little fuzzy, right? The first audience would have known exactly who he's, he's talking about. But he says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Again, we, reading 2,000 years later, we don't really know who he's talking about. But the first audience, they would have known exactly who he was talking about. But the best guess we have, a lot of scholars think that he is addressing some enterprising merchants who were once a part of the church, but now seem to be off chasing some cheddar. Kids still say that these days. 40, 40's just doing something to me. You know, there, there were a lot of merchants in the ancient world. It was a common way to sort of make, make money. And I, I think that whoever he's talking to had to have been a part of the church at some point in time. Otherwise, why is he talking about him in the letter? Not making any sense, right? So what I get, what I sort of feel is that he is, he's talking to some people who used to be involved in the church, who used to be present and around, and now they seem to sort of have flaked out a little bit. Right? They're these, these enterprising merchants. We've got to use our imagination a bit here. You know, in my mind, it's not hard to imagine. Maybe these are people who, like, they were in a pickle. Things were hard, and the church showed up for them. They got involved. They helped out. They were generous towards them, right? But then once they kind of got through the trouble, right, things got easy again, they were just sort of back to how life was before the trouble, and they just kind of flaked out. That happens sometimes in the church, doesn't it? And people love you when they need you. And once you help them out, it's like, eh. When I got time, I'll come back around. When I got time, I'll be involved. I feel like that's kind of the vibe here, right? Things have gotten bad for the church, too. Remember, things aren't easy. Things are hard. And they're not necessarily around. It's like, you can imagine why James is so fired up, right? It's like, man, God is doing this great, big, new thing, like putting things back together, and it's getting hard, and we're here trying to hold it down and trying to take it forward, and you're just too busy off working your five-year plan. And that's kind of the vibe, kind of the energy here. Come on, man, right? But I love what he says next in verse 14. He says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You're so preoccupied with what you're going to be doing in the future, with, to, with, you know, with tomorrow. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know how that's going to go. You make all these plans. Isn't that the truth? Man, we make all these plans, seize the day, make it happen. And we have no idea what, what tomorrow will bring. Sometimes tomorrow is a big flaming turd of a day. Right? It just doesn't go the way we thought it would. What then? right? He really gets into it. Man, he asks this question, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And actually, a more literal, tra- literal translation would be, if it's the, the Lord's Lord. will and we are still alive, we will do this or that. Man, what is your life? What is your life? If it's the Lord's will and we are still alive, whew, essentially, what James is calling them and us to think about is to think about our life and our time in light of two really important realities. Our mortality and God's will. Our mortality and God's will. If you've been around here for a little while, then you should recognize, some of this should sound familiar. Verse 14 ought to sound a little familiar to you. Because James is referencing a book of the Bible that's really dear to my heart. Anybody know who it is? What book is it? Huh? Ecclesiastes. Give her a high five. I love Ecclesiastes. We pointed out that James likes the book of Proverbs a lot, right? He's referencing Proverbs a whole bunch. Ecclesiastes is like Proverbs' grouchy neighbor in the Bible. You ever seen like Inside Out? Remember that cartoon? You got Joy, right? And her friend, her companion, Sadness, right? She's, hmm. I feel like that's kind of like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And they're like right next to each other in the Bible. They're part of what the Jewish people call the wisdom tradition. And James, you can tell, man, he is steeped in the wisdom tradition. But Ecclesiastes can be a little heavy, a little heavy-handed. One of the things that Ecclesiastes wants to do is confront us with the fact that we are going to die. You're going to die. It's going to happen. And he talks about death directly at least 20 times. Right, not to mention the 33 times that the book tells us that pretty much everything is meaningless. In the Hebrew, it's this word havel, and it means vapor or mist. He's not saying it's bad. It's just not permanent. It doesn't last forever. And this is the part that James is referencing in our past. What is your life? It's a mist. It's here for a while, and then it's gone. It's temporary. It's passing. Things don't stay this way. For instance, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? It's really fun, isn't it? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Or I like this from chapter 7. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Sounds kind of morbid, a bit of a downer, but for me, I found it to be very clarifying. There's some clarity that comes to us from all of this. In light of the fact that you're going to die, how are you living? Like, really, how are you living? Like, you, you, you got to really think about that, right? I mean, your days are numbered. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I love what it says. It says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Another way of saying this is it's better to go to a funeral than a party. I mean, think about it. What kind of conversations do you have after a funeral? You tend to talk about stuff that matters, don't you? Because that seems to be a lot more clear, a lot more apparent Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's what death can do for us. Death can actually wake us up to the gift of life. 
I say it like this sometimes. There's beauty in the brevity. There's beauty in the brevity. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And what a verse to reflect on. God has made everything beautiful. But what? In its time, for a season, for a period. And it speaks about the beauty of everything, but it also is a warning that your opportunity to notice it, to enjoy it, to be engaged with it, doesn't last forever. It's here for a time, and then it's gone. There's beauty in the brevity. And when I am in touch with the brevity, I am usually much more aware of the beauty. Are you with me on that? I guess past week I had a weird, weird kind of thing happen with my daughter, Gigi. Y'all know Gigi, my middle daughter. She's 10. I love all my kids the same. I got no favorites. But Gigi and I are kind of like kindred. We're both weirdos, right? We're just a little weird. We're a little different, a little odd. And the other two were off at a, a sleepover. And it was just, uh, Gigi was home just with me and, and Lindsay. And Lindsay had gone to bed, and Gigi and I were kind of hanging up, hanging out together down in the basement. And she was like, hey, Dad, I really want to show you something. Can, can I show this to you? She's like super excited about it. She wanted to be showing me something on Minecraft. Y'all know Minecraft? It's a video game. Uh, I usually refer to it like, as like Legos without the mess. Because it's like you build stuff. That's what you do in Minecraft. You just build things. And I have like, you know, it's a soft spot in my heart for Minecraft because you ever like stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night? You ever like got your foot? Yeah, it hurts, right? You got to deal with that with Minecraft. It's all, you know, it's, just, it's clean. But uh, she wanted to show me something. She's like, yeah, I've been thinking about this and I really, I really wanted to show you for a while. And so she's like, this is, it's, it's a world. There's a special world in Minecraft that like Ron and I had made together. And she said, it's the first one we actually like did together. You know, and she was super pumped. You can kind of hear it in her voice. And so it's loading, and she pulls it up, you know, and she's, like, taking me around and showing me all this stuff. And, and she's just so excited. You can hear it in her voice. But then it's like she comes up on this first, like, kind of big house thing that her and Rowan made together. And her voice cracks. You can kind of hear. Not only is she excited, but she's kind of holding back some tears. And I'm, like, noticing, like, hey, is this, is this like, getting to you? And she just kind of lets it go. And all of a sudden, the tears just come. You can tell she's been kind of thinking about this for a while. She said, yeah. She said, Dad, this, this is something that Rowan and I did together all the time. We couldn't wait. We would come, we would get in here, and we would make all this stuff, and we'd build all these things together. And she's, like, showing me around. And she's, like, laughing and crying at the same time. You ever been there? She's like, it's so great. And she's also like, Bleh. And she's like, I'm not mad that he doesn't play with me anymore. But she's like, she's like, you know, he's, he plays these other games now. And he does all these other stuff. And, you know, we don't really do this together anymore. I'm not mad about that. I get it. It's cool. But she's like, I was just thinking, like, how fast it goes. She's like, I'm, I'm about to go into fifth grade. And he's going into sixth grade. And she's like, it just feels like yesterday when we were doing this kind of stuff together. And now it's like, it's all just moving so fast. And I was just watching her have this moment. She's like, joy and crying at the same time, and she's just feeling that kind of like, hey, you know what I'm talking about? How does it feel when you look back at those pictures of your kids and they had them chubby cheeks? How's that feel? It's like, oh, but it's also beautiful, isn't it? Listen to me. Things don't stay the same. This current arrangement will not last forever. It won't be like this forever. Some of you are like, praise God. You're right. There's, there's some good news in that, right? Some of us are like, I hope this doesn't last forever. It won't. It won't. There'll be some good days coming too. But guess what? Some of us are in the middle of some things and we're not paying attention to it. It will not stay this way forever. People grow up. 
They move out of the house. People get sick. They pass away. Things are not static. They change. How differently would we spend our time? How much more would we notice if we live this awareness that things won't always be the way they are right now? I try to challenge myself with this question on a regular basis. 10, 15, 20 years down the road, what am I going to wish I did now? I have a conversation with my future self. <laughs> future self, how am, I, how am I wasting my time right now? And it can be so clarifying. One of the things it reveals are those things that are stealing your time. Those people, places, and things, those mindless hobbies, the 300 and whatever times a day you're checking your phone, it's stealing your time. So I think one of the most helpful ways we can think about our time isn't as just some sort of experience, but a resource. It's a resource that we can never get more of. You only have so much time. You're aware of that, right? How are you spending it? And that's how we talk about time, isn't it? We talk about it in terms of a, like it's a commodity. How, do you, how are you spending your time? How are you wasting your time? How are you using your time? Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Are you with me? There's an urgency to this from James. There's an urgency to this. I mean, these merchants are so preoccupied with tomorrow and what, 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 what they're going to do. James is like, tomorrow, you don't have tomorrow. The only thing that's guaranteed to you is today. What are you doing right now with today? For some reason, we tend to live as if our lives are disconnected. As if there's no relationship between the present and the future. You know, a lot of people, they, they sort of say to themselves, you know, we think we can sort of put life on hold and one day get around to straightening things out. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Man, the greatest predictor of your future is how you're living right now. Young people, listen to me. Because we can be the worst at this when we're young. When we think we have more than enough of something, we tend to be really wasteful with it. Am I right? And when we're young, we think, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing, do what I want right now. Eventually, I'll, get it, I'll, I'll straighten some things out. I'll get serious. I'll get, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You're becoming somebody right now. Your choices are taking you in a direction. The question is, is it where you want to go? Are you becoming who you want to be? I'll never forget, I had a mentor of mine in Ohio named Jay Meyer. Incredible guy. He, he worked with people... Uh, in recovery. And I remember there was a string of overdoses happening in Ohio. People were passing away. It was awful. And I remember at one of, his, one of the funerals that he was speaking at, he said something that I didn't expect him to say. You don't usually hear people say this kind of stuff at a funeral. But he said this, you know, sometimes it is your last chance. Sometimes it is your last chance. You know, yes, there's always a second chance. We need to hear about that. We usually hear about that a lot, right? There's a second chance. You can always try again. There's always grace to try again. But sometimes he's right. Sometimes there is no second chance. At the same time, there's always consequences. There's consequences. Grace is always there. Redemption is always possible. Yes, but grace does not take away consequences. What grace will do is help you live with them. But they're still there. And what a sobering thought. Sometimes, you know what? This is your, this is your last chance right here. You keep neglecting that relationship. Eventually, it's going to end. You know, you start, you're not taking care of your body. Eventually, something bad is going to happen. Like there's sometimes we, we have to wake up to the fact that there's always a second chance. Right now, this might be your last one in this particular instance. There's a sobering reality to that. Are you with me? Man, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. James doesn't just call them to think about their life in light of their mortality. 
he also challenges him to think about it in terms of the Lord's will. And we, we hear the idea of will, and we tend to think of like God's plan, right? Like how things will eventually sort of unfold. I don't think that's the best way to think about God's will. I think a better way to think about God's will is God's desire. What God wants to have happen. I mean, think about the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May things be in the world the way God wants them to be. But things aren't always that way. Am I right? Otherwise, why would we need to pray that prayer in the first place? Right? It's an important distinction for us to make. When we think of God's will as God's plan that will just sort of unfold, it puts us in this really passive posture. We're just supposed to just wait around for it, right, and sort of figure it out to be revealed. God's will isn't something we wait for as much as it's something we're called to work towards. And there is a call on all of us who identify as a Jesus follower to partner with God in making God's will more of a reality here and now. And we can be sure that God's will being done on earth as in heaven will have something to do with what James calls the royal law. He refers to this several times in the letter, the royal law. And he spells it out really clearly in chapter 2 when he says this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. So we can be sure that carrying out God's will or God's desire in the world will definitely have something, everything, to do with that. Are you with me? I mean, if your pursuit of God's will doesn't lead you to loving your neighbor more, then you're not doing it right. <laughs> you're not doing it right. And I think it's going to have something more to do than just your 401k. Did you hear me? God's will for my life. We tend to think about that in terms of like us and our thing, right? Whatever God's will is, sure, it's going to involve that, but it's going to invite it to be a part of something bigger than that. Something bigger than just itself. James says to these merchants, and he says to us, I want you to consider how you are spending your time, your life, in light of the bigger thing that God is up to in the world. When we're younger, we tend to think that the world is just sort of all about us. Am I right? That's we're sort of the point of the whole thing. We're the star of the show. Like when I was younger, I remember actually thinking that I was like the only the real human being and everybody else was a robot. Anybody else do that? Anybody else do stuff like that? Or just me? But we tend to think we're kind of the star of the show. And listen, I don't think that's all bad. I think the first half of life is meant to be about us and healthy ego development, figuring out who we are, what we like. And we're driven by this desire to like experience the world and like see what there is out there for us, right? We're driven by that. I don't think that's a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. But the problem is we got to grow up. We have to mature from that. We have to graduate from that. And I have found a lot, in my experience, a lot of people struggle to make that transition, to move from first half of life to second half of life. First half of life is about getting your life together. Second half of life is about learning how to give it away. And what I found is people about my age can get stuck, can get stuck. You know, I, I know it's not so clean and simple, right? We have two halves of life. No, they kind of mush-mash together, and we got to hold on to both parts in, in, in each, each half. But eventually we come to realize, typically through disappointment, failure, or disillusionment, that it's not about us. 
right? Like either our life didn't turn out how we hoped, we didn't reach all of our dreams and all of our goals, or the rare case that we actually did, and we realize it's not all as cracked up to be. But we tend to come to this place where we start to realize that whatever life is about, is about something bigger than just us and our story, our dreams and our goals. But around midlife, what I've noticed is we tend to have one foot in each half. You know what I'm talking about? We tend to have one foot in sort of each half. By now, we've experienced some disappointment. We look around, you know, how'd I get here? <laughs> that didn't quite turn out the way that I wanted it to. We also realize we're not going to do everything we wanted, all the dreams we have. We're not going to fulfill them or accomplish them. And we usually have some responsibilities around this time in life. We've got kids. We've got family, or we're in position in our work where people report to us, and we've got this sort of weight of responsibility. Instead of embracing it and sort of fully graduating to that second half of life, what I've watched a lot of people do is just try and live the first half over again. It's what you call a midlife crisis. It is, but you hear people say things like, I'm, I'm, I just want to do me. I'm tired of everybody needing me for things and having to do I just want to do me for a while. I'm just going to be about me. And what they tend to do is sort of flake out and bail on the people who depend on them, who, who they need to be responsible for. And I've found that, man, if you typically go down that road, it sounds fun, but you go too, too far down that road, you know what you end up as? Alone and empty. Alone and empty. Now listen, we can't lose ourselves in the second half of life. That's not the goal, right? That's why I don't like the word selfless. That word, I don't like the way that sounds. I like self-givenness. The point isn't to lose yourself. The point is to be yourself fully and then leverage it for the good of others. But man, listen, if we want to use our limited time well, we need to invest it in something bigger than us people and endeavors that will live long after we are gone. I heard this really great story a while back. I'm getting close. We're going to wrap it up, moving to communion, so just relax. But I heard this story a while back. I might have shared it before. I can't remember, but it's a story you want to tell more than once anyway. But it's about Eleazar Maccabee. In fact, I think, Jay, you're the first one that told me this story. Eleazar Maccabee. Maccabees were this family of Jewish freedom fighters, that stood up to the Greeks. There aren't any stories about them in the Bible because most of their history took place in between the Testaments, right? The Old and New Testaments, there's a big, big period of history right there in the middle. We don't have any books in our Bible about. But the Maccabees were this incredible family. You know, but right before the time of Jesus, Israel was an independent state for 150 years. We forget that sometimes. You know, they're ruled by the Romans when Jesus is on the scene. But, but before that, they were actually their own state, their own nation for 150 years. It was because of the Maccabee family. They fought off the Greeks. But there's this great story about Eleazar. There's this battle going on, and the Greeks would often have elephants in their formation. They would bring elephants into the battlefield, right? And Eleazar, he's fighting, and he notices there's this one elephant that has like an extra tower on top of it. He's thinking, man, the king might be on that. The guy in charge might be on that tower, so I'm going to go take that elephant out. And that's what he does. He fights his way through this crowd. He's fighting valiantly. Everybody's watching him, and he finally gets to this elephant. He's up underneath it, and he takes a spear, and he sticks it up in the elephant, and he kills it. But guess what? The elephant falls on him, and he dies. It's a fun story, right? Listen, if we're going to die, 
and turn to your neighbor and say, you're going to die. You might as well do it killing an elephant. You might as well do, you might as well give your life to stuff that matters. You might as well invest it in people and things that are going to live on long after you're gone. Like when you get to the end of your life and you look back, and everybody gets to this point. Everybody does. They look back and they think, what did I do with it all? And what bugs me is now you, you hear kind of like, you know, the secular version of like, YOLO, you only live once. You got to live it up. Get the most out of your days. Usually what we mean is you got to go back and do more first life stuff. You need more vacations. You need to go buy more things. You need to have more parties or whatever it is, right? We tend to think that's what we need. I'm telling you, that will not scratch the itch. It won't scratch the itch. What you need is to see your life get caught up in something bigger than you that's going to be here after you're gone. And it doesn't have to be some big extravagant thing. I mean, a really good friend of mine, he's felt recently this sort of nudge to get involved in the life of a teenager who doesn't live under his own roof. For whatever reason, that teenager's dad, he lives on the other side of the country and he can't be around. And so my friend sort of decided, you know what, I'm going to be around. I'm going to check in on him from time to time. There was even one day he took him to go buy a Mother's Day present for his mom. That's what he did. You know what I call that? Time well spent. That's time well spent. What's this look like for you? And my challenge for us, we're going to get really practical this week on the podcast. Hopefully you're tuning in. We're going to keep it going on the podcast. A lot more ideas and thoughts talking about managing our time. We're going to get into that this week. But I just want to leave you with this. How are you using your time? In light of the fact that your days are numbered, you only got so much more time. What aren't you paying attention to? What's something you're putting off? You've been avoiding And then how much of your time is actually invested in just you and yours? And how much of it is being caught up in what God is doing in the world? How much time are you setting aside for that? I'm going to tell you right now, men, listen to me, talking to you. We need you to get involved. We got too many ladies doing everything. I'm just saying it. It's the truth. I got a whole bunch of high school boys that are looking for some guys to show up for them. We need volunteers. We need your time to make time for them. Man, you talk about making a difference? You don't got to be cool. I'm not cool. I said cheddar earlier. (laughs) You just got to be available. You just got to be available and be present to them. I mean, I'd love to get some some more small groups going for our high school students, but we can't because we don't have any guys who are willing to do it. What's that about? What are you spending your time doing? Probably, you know, yes, have fun, enjoy it. But is there any time set aside? for people who don't live under your roof, to get caught up in what God is doing in the world. That's the challenge for you this week, to take a really hard look at how you're spending your time because how you're spending your time is how you're living your life. You can't divorce the two.